people are happiest when they're striving to reach a goal. When you're dealing with a challenge and focused on a goal, you're not self-absorbed. So in a sense, not only are you getting them to contribute to the organization, but you're making them happier in themselves. Our next guest wrote a book that uh, shook the foundations of us here at One Huddle. A lot of our, a lot of our team got to read it, and a lot of our team enjoyed uh, so much of what it had to say. And there were also a bunch of perspectives that were heavily debated. Uh, and it's for that reason we wanted to be joined by Hera Estroff Morano, editor at large, Psychology Today magazine, contributor to the magazine's advice column, Unconventional Wisdom. She's also the author of the book, A Nation of Wimps, The High Cost of Invasive Parenting, as well as the book, Why Doesn't Anybody Like Me? A Guide to Raising Socially Confident Kids. Morano is an award-winning writer and editor-at-large for Psychology Today. Her articles have appeared in many other publications, including the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, New York Magazine, USA Today, Smithsonian, and Ladies Home Journal. In 2001, she created Psychology Today's Blues Buster, a newsletter dedicated to identifying and documenting the mental health crisis on American college campuses. As a result of her reporting, she was invited to join uh, the Bringing Theory to Practice Project, which seed funds innovative solutions to the collegiate mental health crisis. So why are we talking to Hera today? Well, you know, as we talk about the future of work, we've always believed that it's important to span all corners of the workforce in the discussion. So it's been important that we have economists, that we've had uh, government officials, that we've been joined by C-level executives, that we've been joined by collegiate coaches. And in this case, uh, Hera and her background, uh, as we think about parents' role and how the effects of early childhood education and parenting, what kind of effect they can have on um, the future of our workforce. We talked about trends like quiet quitting for all of us to remember, and we talked about labels like Gen Z and millennials. We're gonna talk about what companies can do right now to better prepare themselves for young people entering the workforce. And we also, most importantly, wanted to talk about her book, A Nation of Wimps, which on top of having a great title, uh, talks about a variety of topics, like the fact that 40,000 US schools no longer even have recess. And the point that there's uh, this concept of snowplow parents today who work to clear the path for kids pushing obstacles out of the way and uh, essentially make it their job that their their children travel as, as smoothly and safely as possible. We wanted to talk, uh, that's a big part of her book. Talks about the power of play and how play is critical neurologically to development. And I thought there was a direct correlation uh, to how we think about training and development programs. And again, in the book, uh, a ton of research supporting the effects of the way that we are raising, teaching, and parenting young people, and it opens the question, are we doing it correctly? Are we providing our young people with the most opportunities to be successful? So, hey, I'm done talking. Like, it's time for you to hear what Hera has to say. Let's bring it in. For background, you know, I was given, I, I was, I was given your book by a by a friend who was a, a teacher at a, at a university and when when in all honesty when she first sent it to me i was i was kind of offended i was wondering if she was trying to send me a message based off the title but here i'd love to maybe you could open us up by sharing some background on maybe not just yourself but what made you write okay the nation of wimps i didn't plan to write a nation of wimps 
Um, I was at psychology today. I was putting out a newsletter on depression for psychology today, in addition to working on the magazine. And I got wind of the fact that there was a one sentence article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, something to the effect that there were rising rates of anxiety on college campuses, just one sentence. And being in New York and having just fledged two sons uh, into the world, I thought, oh, I'm sure I know why there are higher rates of anxiety in the Northeast. It's all that pressure to get into Harvard. So I did what any responsible reporter would do. I called Harvard and I called, I, I directed my call to the head of the uh, campus counseling center who happened to be the head of the student health center, also the mental health center. And uh, I spoke to him and I said, uh, um, I understand that um, rates of anxiety are rising. My hypothesis is that this is a phenomenon of kids in the Northeast all going to private school and trying to get into Harvard. And he quickly corrected me and told me that, no, this is a national phenomenon. Um, it's been happening for a couple of years. And I asked him what every journalist knows to ask is, how do you know what you know? And so I said to him, well, how do you know that this is happening all over the country? And he said, I'm on a listserv of council, campus counseling center directors. And that was in my notes, but he assured me that uh, this was um, a universal phenomenon in all of North America. It later turns out to be even wider than that. But when I got off the phone, I was looking at my notes and um, I saw that he said he was on a listserv. I called him back and I said, can I ask you a question on your listserv? And the answers can come to me. Just one question. I woke up the next morning and 500 emails told me the same thing. Why were kids showing more anxiety and depression, which are kind of two faces of, of one coin? And that became a very rich gold mine of information. And what I did was, so this was in 2002, early 2002, and I devoted an issue of my newsletter to crisis on the campus. It made national headlines, um, rising rates of psychological problems, serious psychological problems among students, not just I'm homesick, I don't like my roommate, but the beginning of really serious disorders. Uh, and I explored that, I thought thoroughly. And then in 2004, I decided to go back and I discovered 
went back to all my sources, discovered that the rates were rising very quickly and the symptoms people were showing were even more serious, like self-harm and rates of um, uh, suicide, serious depression were really rising and of dramatic concern to people. And then I began asking why, and I got the same answer from absolutely everybody. This cohort is very different. Um, they come to school with no coping skills. Their parents have pushed them to get into some brand name college. And in the course of doing so, they've taken all the lumps and bumps out of life for them so that they will just be able to achieve very quickly and very easily. And no one realized, of course, what the downside of that is. And the downside became my book. Um, I And I didn't plan to do the book. I was just besieged by offers to, to do it. And you know, to answer the question, why is this happening and why is it happening now? So what what was the initial reaction? The book came out, I believe, in 2008. What was the initial wave of reaction from folks when you were talking about it? Um, I well, something interesting happened before then. So the art I initially wrote an article in Psychology Today came out at the end of 2004. And that article was called The Nation of Wimps. And immediately, just immediately, I was inundated with offers to speak. And the first place I was asked to speak was at Notre Dame University. I was the featured speaker on faculty day. And that to me was a revelation um, because... I heard from so many people on the faculty, the deputy, the, the dean of the Mendoza Business School wrote me a nine page letter telling me what was different about the students and how rapidly it had changed and the students needing to know all the answers in advance. There was no toleration for uncertainty, it showed up in many, many ways. Um, parents called, parents were constantly intervening. Um, but the most interesting thing, the first person to ask me a question when I finished was the head of athletics at Notre Dame. Now, can you think of anyone closer to God than the head of the athletic director? at Notre Dame. And, and this was a theme that I heard constantly from coaches. Coaches became like my first audience um, because in working closely with students um, and the results of their decisions being immediate, does my kid play or not play in the next game? they were getting a lot of interference from parents. They could see changes in the nature of the kids and the emotional 
composition of the kids. And they were also suddenly being inundated with calls from parents. So the the head of, the athletic director at Notre Dame told me something that I wound up passing on every time I went to a school and teachers would pull me aside and ask me for any hints, what can we do to stem this epidemic? Um, he, in asking me a question, he also told me that how he dealt with this intrusiveness of parents was that he literally told every student, if I get a call from a parent, you're benched for the next game. That's a pretty effective way of handling things. I don't think that other professors would have the leeway to do that. I think they would be benched by the university. That's another thing that has happened. So turning these are all kids being turned out into the workforce and they've been protected. People have um, argued on their behalf when they don't get something they when they get something they don't like, when they get an evaluation they don't like, when they get a grade they don't like, it isn't something that they internalize. It isn't something where they say, oh my, I need to do better work. Where do I need to, where are my strengths? Where are my weaknesses? It's no, I'll have my parent call and get my grade changed. I mean, that would have been totally unheard of, not only in my cohort, but my kids. I mean, it would just be unthinkable. Um, but we have now um, 20 years of this and they're being fed into the workforce. And um, I'm sure, You've seen them, I've seen them, and it's really quite stunning. Um, their fragility has all kinds of implications, and not just for the workforce, but for democracy, because you have to be a very self-coherent, self-functioning, self-directing person able to make up your mind in order to carry out the most basic task of democracy, which is to vote. So there are implications all up and down the line um, for this. What What do you think about today when you hear, you know, for the last three years with COVID, you had um, great resignation. You, you know, then they have, uh, I, I lose track of all the, the sayings, Quiet quitting. Quiet quitting. Boss lots. Now the new one is uh, quiet hiring. I heard right. two weeks right? yeah. quiet. I guess oh, is there a connection between these trends and you know over the last two decades? How do you think about it? Well, I think to some degree there is there is certainly some resonance with quiet quitting. Um, because to some degree it reflects indecisiveness. Um, to some degree it's, um, 
not making a move, but just uh, doing the minimal amount of work to stay where you are, to protect yourself and doing the minimal amount of work. Number one, there's a lack of commitment in there. That's very much a characteristic of these people, of this generation, given this kind of upbringing. I do want to qualify it and say that this is not true of 100% of the cohort. This is what I'm talking about is largely a phenomenon of the middle and upper middle and upper class. The, the segment of society that knows that its kids are going to go to college, that knows from even before birth, because getting into college is the focus of their push and of their anxieties. Um, and that's where it mainly shows up. And because the college, a brand name college, becomes important, it's a, um, it, it's sort of a, a marketable brand that somehow certifies you to be of use um, and to be marketable uh, in the job market. Um, so I want to make it clear that this is that there are segments of society that are not overparented. I wish the parents who overparented would kind of spread out their parenting and deliver some of it to the kids whose parents are much too busy trying to make a living and struggling to make a living and, and equalize things um, a bit. I, I think um, about I think about you know, managers today in the workforce who are hiring young people out of college, and the I know speaking for me in my business, you know, fifteen years ago, hiring a young person out of a university uh, into an internship program, and always always worked with sales teams, so you know a young person coming into a sales role and and earning commission and growing through in a performance environment, uh, it was, it has become increasingly more difficult right. to find, and it's not a skill, I don't believe it's necessarily a skill uh, problem, but it's become increasingly difficult to find young people out of this, at the same age with the, with the drivers and the motivation necessary yeah. to approach that task the right way. And uh, I wonder, I guess, what, what can I do as a, Coach, what can managers, coaches uh, that are responsible for onboarding and trying, what can they do other, you know, uh, given these experiences that they can't go back in time and adjust? No, they can't. So I mean, there are several things that they can do. And one is where they look in the hiring pool. Um, and I'll tell you a great conversation I had. Uh, I was on a plane going out to Los Angeles to give a talk and uh, seated next to me was a woman who was a senior VP at Goldman Sachs. Now, I don't know a parent 
who wouldn't give their left arm to have their kid hired <laughs> out of college, you know, by Goldman Sachs. And and she asked me what I was doing. Why, what was I going to be talking about in LA? And I told her and she said, oh my God. She said, I am not a parent, but I hire lots of kids. And she said, and this is exactly how she said it. She said, I will not hire any more the fancy kids, air quotes around fancy kids, meaning the kids coming from privileged backgrounds and private schools. She said, I will hire only the kids, uh, first generation immigrants, because they've never had anyone running interference for them. They can problem solve, they can function on their own. That was an eye opener for me. So that's one thing, where do you look for uh, to hire? And it turns out that um, there are colleges in New York City that are predominantly, that predominantly serve that first gen of college students. And I learned from one of them, Baruch College, that they have an extraordinarily high rate of the kids being hired into these firms for precisely the reason um, that I mentioned and that that senior VP clued me into. So number one is where you look to hire. Um, now, you may have to teach those kids um, some of the cultural skills, um, but those are remediable, very quickly remediable, and those kids are smart. They catch on very quickly. Um, so you might have to teach them which fork to use when they're going to a very fancy uh, awards dinner or something. But the kids who are emotionally fragile, they're a lot harder to manage and deal with because you can't give them feedback. You can't give them direct feedback. That's something that they really can't take, nor can they, nor are they as um, uh, resilient and flexible as people need to be in this work economy. Um, so one of the things that managers can do is establish well anyone who's managed anyone in this generation knows that they need constant 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 feedback there's so much uncertainty about themselves about how good they are how well they're doing um and they can't read any signals that they need constant reassurance. It's terribly demanding of managers, takes up a great deal of time. So I think that one thing managers can do is if they hire from um, that pool of kids, they can establish a relationship in the beginning. Hey, look, you know, what do you need from me? Here's the way I work. I can't stop to give feedback every 10 minutes. Um, but if you're not hearing anything negative to, from me, 
you can assume that everything is on track. Otherwise you have these kids sitting there paralyzed with anxiety and inability to work and certainly detracting um, from their productivity. So that becomes an important tool. Yeah, the communication one is very, very valid. Learning to, I grew up from South Florida and I grew up in a environment playing high school football and said the coaches never led with why. They, they, they explained it later, but when they told you to do something, <laughs> you never asked why. And I talked to my, you know, I go, always go home to Miami and I always go and have lunch with, you know, coach. So I always go back to see coach once a year. And, you know, he's at the end of his career and he made the comment. He goes, you cannot, you, you know, he goes, we'd probably be put in prison for the stuff we did to you, to you all. Uh, and he talks about you have to, he continued to win championships with young people. And on top of not allowing parents anywhere near the field on practice, to your earlier point, he talked a lot about how you had to adjust your communication style. And had to lead with why and be okay with it and tell people why this drill makes sense, why you're asking them to do it. And that was a, some coaches won't, you know, some coaches retired because they wouldn't make that change. Some have adjusted and still been successful. Yeah. I mean, um, as I said, the coaches have, have been almost the point people. They've been, they were certainly my first fans. I mean, I heard from them utterly immediately. And we're talking head coach at Yale, assistant director of athletics at Yale, at Notre Dame. You, I heard from people. Um, but the need for reassurance that these kids, I say keep saying kids, but these young people have, it's very hard for managers to, to deal with. And I think they have to set the boundary right at the beginning. Um, otherwise, um, they're going to find a real lack of productivity and this deathly uncertainty that will be paralyzing the reports. So their direct reports. Um, the, other, the other thing I had written down that I kind of took it, looked at it from a, another vantage point was just like hiring managers are trying to avoid the fancy kids or avoid the, the candidates who came from an environment they know won't work for them. I feel like it's, it, from the point of view of the first generation immigrant or the student, the young person that came from the right environment, they got to avoid the invasive HR people who are also invasive parents, who are also afraid of some of the things you talk about in this book, like not being afraid of failure and challenging and using play and struggle being important to learning. That's not a common, I mean, there's a lot of HR teams that are deathly afraid of failure and challenge and making people uncomfortable. So I don't know what you think about that, but I thought about, you know, for a lot of people who want to make sure they work in the right organization, they have to almost keep their eyes, keep, keep lookout for the managers or HR people who, uh, aren't a good fit for them either. Yeah, you know, challenge is a basic principle of life. First of all, evolution requires challenge. I mean, you you don't you don't 
change if you're very comfortable doing what you're doing. Um, your environment changes. There's a challenge. You need to meet it. This is how life evolved on Earth, by challenge and adaptation to the challenge, rising to meet the challenge in some way. Um, most of us don't perform very well unless we're given a challenge. Um, and then we summon our resources because we have an inner either because or including all of these, we have an inner desire to do well. It's part of the way we see ourselves or because we want to please someone and we want others to think well of us. So challenge is absolutely necessary. People perform well um, uh, when challenged. Um, if you remember your favorite professors and teachers in school, they weren't the easy graders. They were the ones who challenged you the most. Um, so it's always really important to remember that. And um, it may be hard for managers to find that exact, that, that sweet spot of challenge, but it's very important to challenge people. And, and there are several be benefits to doing so. So when people are challenged and they're focused on a goal, one, first of all, people are happiest when they're striving to reach a goal. Um, number two, this is a generation that is so self-focused. It's pathetic. When you're when you're dealing with a challenge and focused on a goal, you're not self-absorbed. So in a sense, not only are you getting them to contribute to the organization, but you're making them happier in themselves. They may not realize it right away, but it's them taking their eyes off themselves, giving themselves some relief. I think about all the stories that my best teachers and coaches taught me when I was growing up. And it's when I've said, I've said to people, it's almost like when you use these, I feel silly at times using some of these stories because I feel like everybody should know them or these motivational, or these quotes or these, or these concepts around being a team. But, you know, I think it's true that the given technology, given the upbringing, given the moment we, you know, you said, get your eyes off yourself. Some of those those stories or concepts are, it's like you just, you know, reinvented, uh, uh, you know, you reinvented something never seen before. And um, people want to be, people want to be a part of a team. If you, if you create the right environment for them to be a part of it, um, that's great. Here, our last question. I appreciate you being so gracious with your time. You know, we're talking a little bit about future of work. My final question for you is, what is your hope for the future of work? Wow. Well, um, like a whole lot of other people, um, I'm interested in um, AI. Chat GBT, of course, is uh, somewhere among the top layers of my mind right now, especially I'm in the world of um writing, journalism, reporting, and chappy GBT is a, is a big deal. Um, so what are my concerns? I, I don't think the need for people is going to go away. You know, the funny thing is, um, 
um, my editor-in-chief, just the very day that ChatGBT was announced, my editor-in-chief had ChatGBT do answer some question for her unbeknownst to me that she had done that she showed me that product product and she said to me what do you think of this um because we were talking about this the topic i had no idea this was from chat gbt and i read it and my immediate response was this is so anodyne. This is just boring. This is flat. This is, I'm, yeah, it's accurate, but how dull can you get? And I think we need to remember that. We all respond to personality, to flavor, experience your anecdotes. These are all the human elements that draw us in. Um, I think there's always going to be a need for that. Managers are always going to need to motivate people and you motivate people with real stories of real people and real experience. Uh, so I don't think that's ever going to go away. Um, but I do hope that we can find a balance and that, you know, people just don't get too obsessed and too overwrought um, with the advent of AI. I'm sure it'll find its place for the routine tasks um, where it belongs. But I think it's really very increasingly important to um, have analytic skills, to have um, conversational skills, to have managerial skills, to have, to have really good coping skills, to have flexibility and adaptability. And, um, to be able to sum up information, abstract, um, and and express things really well. The need for that is never going to go away in any organization. So I hope that people recognize that, and I hope they reward people um, for that as well. And um, um, that would be an achievement if we did that. Sarah, thanks for take thank you for taking time and joining us today. Thank you. Take care. You know, it's really hard to squeeze uh, so many of the highlights that I have from Hera's book into a single uh, conversation. And while I think it's important to highlight her point of view around, you know, um, this perspective around fancy kids and her perspective around there being a direct correlation uh, between the challenges that uh, maybe have arisen through parenting styles and the challenges managers have with coaching and motivating and inspiring workers, and even like the uh, challenges around our school system, around how the, the way that we have designed education and designed our environments um, maybe need to be considered uh, as we uh, work to build a environment where all of our young people have a chance to be successful in our workforce today. You know, all that aside, I think, uh, you know, one of the important takeaways I had uh, is her perspective of challenge. You know, this perspective that failure is something that is part of the process. It's not about just toughening up. It's about being okay with struggling and reaching and 
even as far as to say that it is an essential skill to be able to handle challenges. And it's important to provide those challenges to others as leaders and teachers in our communities so that people become better and happier when they're being challenged. Sounds like a game, Jaime, to me. I don't know about you. Um, you know, so much about uh, the points that are being made by Hera you know, are not just isolated to parenting. If we can be invasive parents, we probably can also be invasive managers. We do have an, ex uh, and she says this in the book, not attention deficit disorder, an experience deficit uh, disorder, where we're not giving uh, or providing enough experiences to young people so that they can form the necessary uh, habits that form critical skills. And as managers, um, you know, some of our styles and some of our approaches and some of our behaviors um, may, may check the same box as invasive parents uh, and not create the right types of outcomes that we want. Struggle is important. Struggle is challenge. Talk about games a second ago, you know, play and these types of uh, tools make you more flexible as a person, as an individual, as an employee. And as I think about all of the changes that are happening in the future of work, I think about the fact that McKinsey comes out with data studies supporting the point that 30 to 60% of the functions that make up a job are going to change in the next decade. It tells me that uh, the speed at which change is happening is happening faster and faster and faster. And we need to not just build better curriculum or training programs, but we need to invest more in people so that they can be flexible and they can adjust and they can adapt and they can change as the world around us changes. Thank you to Hera for joining us on this episode. Uh, and if you haven't already, head on over to your local bookstore and ask them for A Nation of Wimps, The High Cost of Invasive Parenting. Now, don't forget to subscribe to Bring It In so you never miss an episode. We've got some awesome guests lined up that you're not going to want to miss. Now, back to work. Thank you.